This is Swampside Chats, the podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we're back on the forced march to the mashab of Silicon Valley's latest guru, the Israeli historian Yaval Noah Harari. We picked up his 2016 book, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, and read part two, Homo Sapiens Gives Meaning to the World. We have a not one step back request. Not sure if it's enemy camp. Not sure what it is really. It seems to be a Silicon Valley thought leader. Yeah, whatever that means. Because I just I kind of read this cold, like I literally just opened the PDF and just started looking through it, and it didn't surprise me that this guy does TED talks. Like it reads like a really long TED talk. Hello, so welcome to this TED dialogue. I've become quite concerned about the growing divisiveness in this country and in the world. And it feels like we need a different kind of conversation, one that's based on, I don't know, on reason. That's at least what we're going to try in these TED Dialogues starting today. And um, we couldn't have anyone with us who I'd be more excited to kick this off. This is a mind right here that thinks pretty much like no one else on the planet, I would hate to say. I'm serious. I'm serious. He, he synthesizes history with underlying ideas in a way that kind of takes your breath away. And um, honestly, uh, we couldn't have someone better to help make sense of what on earth is happening in, in the world right now. So uh, a warm welcome, please, to Yuval Noah Harari. Maybe we should say what we read, first of all. Nah, let's just keep shitting on it. <laughs> Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow by Yuval Harari, who is the best-selling author of Sapiens. So what we read was chapters 5 through 7. I read 4 as well. Yeah, so we sort of read part 2 of the book. We either read it or read most of. Part 2, Homo Sapiens, Gives Meaning to the World, which means we kind of read Storytellers chapter 4, but we read also 5, The Odd Couple, 6, The Modern Covenant, and 7, The Humanist Revolution. This is an academic text, to say the least. It is kind of like a popular text in that it's kind of trying to explain these kind of broad concepts written for the layperson. Like, for instance, there's a section where he's talking about how human beings are, like, subject to moral laws that we didn't invent and can't change. And so he gives, like, these weird abstract examples where he's like, a Jewish boy comes to his father and asks, Dad, why shouldn't we eat pork? Father strokes his long white beard and thoughtfully answers, Well, Yankel, or Yankele, or I'm not sure how to pronounce that. That's how the world works. You are still young and you don't understand, but if we eat pork, God will punish us and we will come to a bad end. It isn't my idea. It's not even the rabbi's idea. If the rabbi had created the world, maybe you would have created a world in which pork was perfectly kosher. But the rabbi didn't create the world. God did it. And God said, I don't know why we shouldn't eat pork, so we shouldn't. And then he gives another example. In 1943, a German boy comes to his father, a senior SS officer, and asks, Dad, why are we killing the Jews? The father puts on his shiny leather boots and meanwhile explains, Well, Fritz, that's how the world works. You're still young, you don't understand. If we allow the Jews to live, they will cause the degeneration and extinction of humankind. It's not my idea. It's not even the Fuhrer's idea. If Hitler had created the world, maybe he would have created a world in which the laws of natural selection did not apply, and Jews and Aryans could all live together in perfect harmony. But Hitler didn't create the world. He just managed to decipher the laws of nature, and then instructed us on how to live with them. If we disobey these laws, we will come to a bad end. Is that clear? And another one. In 2016, a British boy comes to his father. A liberal MP and asks... Dad, why should we care about the human rights of Muslims in the Middle East? Father puts down his cup of tea, thinks for a moment, and says, Well, Duncan, that's how the world works. You're still young, you don't understand, but all humans, even Muslims in the Middle East, have the same nature and therefore enjoy the same natural rights. This isn't my idea nor a decision of Parliament. If Parliament had created the world, universal human rights... Well, you get the idea. 
And it's relevant that this guy is an Israeli academic, I think, in all of those uh, examples. A gay, <laughs> vegan, Israeli academic. Is he gay and vegan? Yes. Yes, he is. Wow. I'm looking at the Wikipedia right now. Yeah, apparently he lives on a Moshav. I looked into his background character and watched like a video or two of people talking about him in the book. And going into this, I expected to be reading like the book equivalent of the Sam Hyde TED talk, but I got something else out of it, I guess. Yeah, so we're some pretty savvy listeners, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they send us requests. Like, usually the things that we read are something that we probably, in the ballpark of the kind of thing that we would have read anyway, right? We all love Victor Serge. Yeah. You know? Uh, somewhere, I think, in the queue is Paul Cockshot, which I probably would have pushed for us to read at some point mm-hmm. anyway, you know? But every once in a while, there's an episode where I'm like, why are we reading this? It's a curveball. Yeah. It's a real curveball. I can look into the listener that sent it to us. Speculating, like, why are we reading this exactly? What can we glean from this? Is this uh, just a window into, like, Silicon Valley, TED Talk, Big Brain Thought? Is there some kind of weird historicism that we're supposed to pull from this? Or some kind of, like, what are we, what are we looking at here? What are we doing? Our longtime donor, Sal, they sort of... <laughs> I'm going to read a little bit of of what they said here. Keep in mind that he's writing for a large audience and that the book brushes a lot of different ideas. So while some of the factual details might be questionable, I found his interpretations and outlook inspiring. He's very entertaining for me to read. It's not the worst whenever he mentions Marx or communism either, at least from my modestly educated hobby leftist view. But I really don't want to waste your time. So don't do it if you're just going to completely shit on it. It is written for a broad audience and perhaps superficial in ways, but perhaps it can still introduce concepts. Like a friend of mine who's much more well-read on philosophy than me told me she doesn't agree with Harari's ontology, but I don't know how many original concepts are here. But similar to how one of your listeners made you go into Richard Wolff, how he can be read as a popularizer of sorts instead of a theorist. And also, this was the thing that I thought was most interesting. I recently attended a small two-day event of the Turkish SYKP in Zurich. They had talks on Marxism, feminism, technology, and other subjects. And on their book table, they had among Lenin and other Turkish versions of Harari's books as well. So I'm not the only communist who appreciates him. So I could see where what we would see as a sort of surgically gutted version of maybe historical materialism or like some kind of post-structuralist variant of historical materialism, to be honest, that is being posited here. It's definitely like a history of forever. At least it understands itself to have already digested and spit out the Marxist worldview. Thinking about like, you know, a Turkish communist group putting this forward in a place where political religion is not totally marginal. It's like a different context from where I'm sitting, where my like enemies are mostly casting themselves in secular terms, mostly in terms of being pro-technology and pro-like future in some way. Like Harari strikes me, not really as sitting on the same table as Marx and Lenin or whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> however I feel about Lenin. I don't really get a historical materialism vibe from it. I, I get more of like a Nietzschean genealogy of morals kind of vibe. It's more or less a history of development of like ideologies and that sort of thing in the context and like focusing on how they develop from more or less psychological perspective. What he picks up from Marxism is like forces of production determinism. Precisely. There is like some kind of materialism, even biologically, in his outlook here as well, right? Later, he does have like a lot of respect for Marx and even up to Lenin. I think precisely because Marx did kind of have at least a rough sketch of like a meta narrative of like human development, right? Mm -hmm. From like primitive communism to communism, right? That was like a vision. And so he wants to think in those terms as well. It kind of reminded me of reading, uh, fuck was that German guy we read with like the weird civilizational, can't remember his fucking name. Right, Spangler. It's like a weird kind of alternate attempt to like craft a broader meta historical narrative of human development, you know? It's kind of weird because, like, obviously, Marx and Engels, as thinkers, were very comfortable with Darwinian theory. Whereas, you know, after fascism and seeing the way that liberals deploy 
evolutionary theory in sociology. You know, you can't really look at that stuff at face value. At the very least, be critical, if not reject it entirely, as some Marxists do. We get an interesting section here where I think he tips his hand a little bit, where he lists the three different kinds of humanist religion or humanist ideology. And it looks very much like civilization, right? You have liberal humanism, socialist humanism. And then just like in civilization, you get a playful euphemism, evolutionary humanism, to refer to this third variant. Yeah. Of which the Nazis were the most obvious people putting this forward. But we shouldn't let Auschwitz get in the way of appreciating what the evolutionary humanists have to offer. (laughs) Very awkward turn here. Yeah. He also literally, like, name-checks, like, civilization. Like, Sid Meier's civilization. Yes, he does. He put on par with Minecraft, which kind of threw me off. Yeah, maybe that's the worrying sign, (laughs) given recent events. He definitely gives me the sense of one of those, like, BBC panic mongers who kind of Michael Moore's his way through it and just sort of, like, tries to make an emotional narrative without necessarily grappling with what's going on in, in each situation. Well, sometimes, like, in his vision of liberal individualism, I did get kind of Adam Curtis vibes. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of precisely, Adam Curtis. I shouldn't have name-checked Michael Moore when I could have just said Adam Curtis. Yeah, we keep things a little higher brow here on this podcast. That's right. All right. We refer to uh, the thinking person's Michael Moore. That's fucking right. He's got an accent. <laughs> I don't buy his category of, like, evolutionary humanism. I don't think that's actually really a form of humanism, per se but rather is something akin to, like, what he describes as, like, non-humanistic philosophy, like Taoism or whatever. Essentially because, like, it's not really driven by humanity, it's driven by, like, forces of nature, more or less, rather than, like, humanity as a whole. Like, humanity is just a part of, like, one larger struggle to survive, like, one species and never-ending conflict of evolution, That's not really a kind of humanism, because while it is focusing on humanity as a species, at the same time, it's still like being determined by laws of nature that are outside of humanity's grasp. I agree that more people have more voice than ever before, both in the U.S. and globally. That's I think you're absolutely right. My concern is to what extent we can trust the voice. Of, of people, to, to what extent I can trust my voice. Like I'm, we have this picture of the world that I have this voice inside me which tells me what is right and what is wrong. And the more I'm able to express this voice in the outside world and influence what's happening and the more people can express their voices, it's, it's better, it's more democratic. But what happens if at the same time that more people can express their voices, it's also easier to manipulate your inner voice to what extent you can really trust that the thought that just pop up, popped up in your mind is the result of some free will and not the result of an extremely... Uh, a powerful algorithm that understands what's happening inside you and knows how to push the buttons and press the levers and is serving some external entity and it has planted this thought or this desire that you now express. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's two different issues of giving people voice and trusting. And again, I'm not saying I know everything, but all these, these people that now join the conversation, we cannot trust their voices. Mm-hmm. I'm asking this about myself, to what extent I can trust my own inner voice. This whole thing comes off as more or less like John Gray, if John Gray wasn't as nihilistic, essentially. Mm-hmm nihilistic and more faithful in like the whole transhumanism thing like john gray is like really really harsh and critical of transhumanism and follows the same points as this guy does like he labels humanism and like socialism and all these things as religions they're like fanatical and utopian in their nature and they structure all of their morality and just rationalizes irrational and horrible things like, you know, in the little example of, oh, the kid who goes up and asks his father, why do we do X thing? Right. You know, John Gray would be like just going on about the death tolls of the Soviet Union or the death tolls of the 20th century. But this guy, uh, this guy. This is why he's looked to as like a quote unquote thought leader by people who watch TED Talks 
and listen to NPR because he's trying to actually grapple with some of the more difficult questions that this current point that we're in civilization poses, right? Like he does see, for instance, like increases in standards of living as a result of industrial society and, and capitalism, right? Yeah. But he also sees like ecologically that this is basically intrinsically unsustainable. And if everybody on earth was going to live the way that Americans do, he points out that we would need more than one planet to provide the resources for that. Right. So he sees that this isn't going to work, but I think precisely because of, you know, sniff ideology, you know, he can appreciate Marxism, but like his critique of it is very, 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 very weak. He points out how like the quote unquote socialist view has all these different criticisms of individualism or different forms of like bourgeois cultural expression and stuff like that. And what he says that the problem with it is that they just defer to the party and the trade union as being the answer to everything. And they do in a sense, not in the sense that, that he says where he, you know, they claim that the party and the trade union are always right about everything or that they're the ones who are going to be the adjudicators of what is correct culture or not. They point to the party and the trade union as basically a way to change society to get out of this bind, right? It's like a very blatant like mischaracterization of the Marxist attitude in a way that makes it sound like it's just purely anti-individualistic. Yeah, but it's a deeply felt kind of mistake where the currents of the socialist movement that Marx was deeply witheringly criticizing are the parts of the movement that took up his name in a lot of places for a lot of history. So the kind of moralistic puritanical socialism that he's describing in a way, like, Marx doesn't even just qualify as a socialist humanist in the way that he's describing, because he has these liberal and evolutionary kind of sympathies. Marx is a much more interesting thinker than the socialist that he's depicting. Well, yeah, and the kind of socialists he was depicting certainly existed. There definitely are some long-standing French Communist Party guy sitting in a trade union hall smoking a cigarette, you know, sipping on some porter, you know, right now, who would fit into this stereotype. Third International Communism definitely encouraged this kind of like, hey, that's the party's business to decide what's up. It's your job to follow, you know what I mean? Like, that existed, but that's not essential to, like, the Marxist critique, I don't think. And I don't think anybody now is really... There's always somebody who acts like that, but I don't think the bulk of people in the current moment view things that way. If anything, like, the contemporary left is too individualistic. My socialism, and the whole way I think of these things, feels like it's not represented here. In a way that makes me feel a little good, I guess, because if he totally summed up my critique and then went, meh, this stuff's garbage. That would have made me feel like that his, I think it's still pretty nihilistic. He would have tedded me out of my confidence, you know? You know the way a TED works, right? You know that Bill Gates has heard this person talk. You know that, you know, the ghost of Steve Jobs is nodding his head in approval. Like, this guy is the future, you know? Who am I? I, I didn't go to Oxford or whatever. No, there was one ideological or religious movement which began in the 19th century, which did manage to change the world, and which is far more important. And when we think back about the 19th century, and we ask ourselves what was the big ideology, the big uh, ethical ideas that came from this period, we think not about Pope Pius IX or the Mahdi, we think about socialism and communism. In 1800, there was hardly any socialists or communists, very few. Even in the middle of the 19th century, there was still a fringe group of bizarre people who have such thoughts. But there was one crucial characteristic about these bizarre people, like Marx and Engels, that enabled them to really change the world and to create an ideology that spread, that spread over the entire planet and helped to shape our life today. The crucial thing about Marx and Engels and later Lenin and Trotsky and all these fellows is that they did not just read old books from hundreds of centuries previously. They studied the technology and the economy of their own day. And they tried to create a new ideology which will be suited to the new opportunities and challenges of 19th century technology and 19th century economics. Lenin was once asked, in a very famous occasion, Lenin was asked by his followers, please, Vladimir, 
Tell us in simple language what communism is. We are not going to read the Kapital, a very, very dense book. We don't want to hear now this long philosophical talk. In very few words, tell us what communism is. And Lenin answers, communism? Communism is power to the workers' councils, the Soviets, plus electrification of the entire country. You cannot have communism without electricity, without the steam engine, without telegraph, radio, railroads. The communist system of production and economics demands these things. You could not have established a communist regime in 16th century Russia. Impossible. First, you must have an industrial revolution. Communism and socialism are built, custom-built, for the world following the Industrial Revolution. This is, this is why they are so successful. Honestly, I've never gotten that feeling from a TED Talk, like, ever. I'll tell you why, because, like, they blatantly seem like grifters. Like, every single person who does one of those things. Part of it is because a lot of them are, and part of it is because of the format of it. Like, I feel like I'm at a multi-level marketing conference, and they're about to, like, roll out the product and, like, the scheme you tell two people and they tell two you know, like that's where it feels like it's going with every single one of those i mean you're mostly right jake but you're a communist and if you're you know young you just hit the job market and you're trying to figure out what's happening you look towards some kind of weird social institution like ted and it whips out this guy that's talking about babylonian hierarchy or something or order of egypt and how their bureaucracy was socialist or something and you're like, whoa, wow, this guy knows a lot. Gee whiz. Yeah, no, see, I am a sophisticated gentleman. <laughs> I'm a Marxist. What gets me hard is seeing a guy in a overcoat uh, coughing every five words at a Wendy's recorded on a poorly shot webcam. Uh, That's how you know you are getting access to the real, the real code, the real inner secrets that underpin our society. We we do have to get Goldner on the show to discuss his essay on agriculture. (laughs) I don't know. I think normal people can see through TED Talks. Yeah. I mean, they're so corny and kind of staged and overly optimistic that it just physically hurts to listen to one. Actually, I take that back. I think actually normal people can relate to it. Okay. I take back my agreement with Rosa because... Like, I've been to a mega church. Thank you. Okay, because I, I was going to say, like, y'all are, you know, I think underselling the degree in which people can participate in absurdity, yeah, yeah. but still really go along with it. And in that way, his sort of like nihilistic read about how important fiction is, is kind of right. And this is the thing that made Althusser lose his mind and go Lacanian. You know what I mean? And embrace this, like, kind of. This, psychopathology of history yeah this getting like strong like rick and morty vibes from this yeah Yeah, this is the universe like that people are working from and i hate to say that this is the fate of evolutionary humanism but bon appetit yeah like without a real grasp of marxist political economy and absent the communist project Something that I would say has more than a dash of historical materialism, but then also this kind of psychopathology of history that honestly has been associated with Marxism and critical theory for at least like 50 years. I could see where this is an eye opener for somebody that grew up at least in a traditional worldview or in a very naive sort of liberal world. This could be earth shattering. I I say it with salt in my tongue. Because I know, I've seen the heights of the immortal science, and the fact that this is what's being peddled, and it has weak sauce representations of something that would be, what I think, a real answer to some of these things. You know, my religious conviction. Right. Let me just read this out of chapter four. You can tell me what this reminds you of. Chapter four, the storytellers. Animals such as wolves and chimpanzees live in a dual reality. And then, yeah, on the one hand, they are familiar with objective entities outside them, such as trees, rocks, and rivers. On the other hand, they are aware of subjective experiences with them, such as fear, joy, and desire. And it's just like, like, that's crazy, man. You ever done DMT? <laughs> yeah. Like, because there's a part where he does this kind of weird regurgitation of Marx's theory of commodity fetishism, where he's like, oh, yeah. He's like, you could pretend like these pieces of papers don't have value and tell everyone, hey, man, it's just a piece of paper. <laughs> But that won't get you very far. If you were like in a thousand years ago, you could be like, hey man, there's nobody in the sky. Like, it's just all us, man. Like, that wouldn't get you very far there either, you know? I mean, that's correct in a way. And if this guy was like, 
maybe popularizing and thinking about things that way. But it's interesting how, I don't know, how complacent like his whole outlook really is mm-hmm. in spite of some of the like deeper like pessimism that he has about the sort of collapse of any kind of agreed upon like social meaning, right? I think what we are seeing is the immediate human reaction. If something doesn't work, let's go back. And you see it all over the world. Almost nobody in the political system today has any future-oriented vision of where humankind is going. Almost everywhere you see retrograde vision, let's make America great again. Like it was great, I don't know, in the 50s, in the 80s, sometime, let's go back there. And you go to Russia, so... A hundred years after Lenin, Putin's vision for the future is basically, oh, let's go back to the Tsarist Empire. And in Israel, where I come from, the hottest political vision of the present is let's build the temple again. So let's go back 2,000 years uh, backwards. Um, So people are thinking... Sometimes in the past, we've lost it. And sometimes in the past, let's like you lost your way in the city. And you say, okay, let's go back to the point where I felt secure and start again. And I don't think this can work. But a lot of people, this is their gut instinct. But why couldn't it work? I mean, America first is a very appealing slogan in, in many ways. Patriotism is, is in many ways a very noble thing. It's played mm-hmm. a role in, in promoting cooperation among large numbers of people. Why, why couldn't you have a world organized in countries, all of which put themselves first? For many centuries, even thousands of years, uh, patriotism worked quite well. Of course, it led to wars and so forth, but we shouldn't focus too much on the bad. There are also many, many positive things about patriotism and the ability to have a, a large number of people care about each other, sympathize with one another, and come together for collective action. I mean, the way that it's talking about, you know, fiction and reality, again, this really is from the post-structural milieu, you know, like the weird stuff about symbolic exchange that Baudrillard got into when he's like fallen off the wagon. This guy's kind of like Baudrillard's bastard kid. He even says like, billions of people, including many scientists, continue to use religious scripture as a source of authority, but these texts are no longer a source of creativity. Think, for example, about the acceptance of gay marriage or female clergy or more progressive (laughs) branches of Christianity. Where did this acceptance originate? Not from reading the Bible, St. Augustine or Martin Luther. Rather, it came from reading texts like Michel Foucault's The History of Sexuality or Donna Haraway's A Cyborg Manifesto. (coughs) Yet Christian true believers, however progressive, can't admit to drawing their ethics from Foucault and Haraway. Right? He's clearly aware of this stuff. Yeah, but the way he name checks it, okay, he's aware of it, but how does he feel about it? It has a bit of a Daily Mail taste, especially when he's talking about the urinal piece. What is it? Fountain? Duchamp. Yeah. Yeah. Michel Duchamp's fountain. That was supposed to be like some kind of institutional critique. It's about something greater than the object. And okay, like give the steel man of fountain and the whole case for why someone put this forward as a work of art. And then you can kind of dismiss it. He kind of falls into the trap that the fountain lays. Is like... You're supposed to yell, that's not art, you know? Right, but it's interesting how he stumbles close to Marx's territory because, like, following that line of thought, he points out how the real medium that art was subsumed into is the market. Right, yeah. Like, the the market is the medium now. Yeah, you know, there's always been, like, an overlap with the sort of reactionary critique of people being like, ah, high tastes are the best, and, you know, market has vulgarized everything. It's made everything low and proletarian. Mm -hmm. Like, it disgusts me. I, I you know, don't know what to think about this guy, ultimately, but he seems super excited to be like, yes, Beethoven is better than Chuck Berry and a bunch of chanting pygmies. Yes! It's interesting, because it's tough to tell, at least when you're first reading it, mm-hmm, where he stands, yeah. because... Actually, I still don't know where he stands. Like, in some ways, he's probably just drawing out of illiberal ideology the thing, well, well, people have decided through the market, and so that must be what's, what's good, right? I think a lot of this is bitterly tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Especially when you get to the five images of humanism. And one of them is, you know, if it feels good, do it. And there's, like, a picture of two cute girls getting married and kissing. Like, um, I'm not saying that he's against this, you know what I mean? But there's a gaze going on there. There's something that he wants to evoke from putting these things forward. Yeah. That I don't trust that he's just saying, hey, man, I'm just trying to think about it, you know? I'm like Socrates. I'm just asking questions. <laughs> there's really something there that I'm a little uncomfortable with. But I wouldn't call him a fascist, you know? It's not clear that he's in the enemy camp. It's just, uh, 
he doesn't seem to like humanism very much, even though he's worried about its eclipse. And this is a part of the book that we didn't read. He's worried about the eclipse of humanity, of humans, I should say, by, you know, cybernetic intelligence. Right. Well, his new atheist content for religion is what really keeps him from wanting to go back to some kind of pre-modern cosmic order, right? What it basically amounts to is that people were basically stupid before, right? And we're smarter than them now. And so we can't go back to being that stupid again. Mm -hmm. But he's also afraid of where things can head. He seems to almost view the future in a kind of an open-winded way, which I think is actually the correct way to look at it, because modernity has created this condition where we are basically creating what is human, or through the scientific process, like, are basically trying to place ourselves in a position where we're basically making our own reality. And that can end up in any number of ways. Like, we don't really know how that story ends, right? Right. Jesus Christ, I'm starting to sound like this guy now. But, like, broadly speaking, I think that's basically correct. Walter, you're not wrong. You're just an asshole. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> what about the whole thing where he talks about the Ark? I like that. Because that does seem to have a fairly, like, realistic outlook. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, he's talking a little bit about the way that people haven't really fully internalized or incorporated into their own life praxis the implications of climate change or the potential for ecosystem collapse broadly. And again, he's probably rubbing elbows with a lot of Silicon Valley types, so I'm inclined to believe him. A lot of people have in their head this idea that they're wealthy or powerful enough to get into the Ark, or whatever the thing is that will be like the last bastion of like human survival or whatever. Some kind of biodome or under giant underground city or some shit like that, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But even that explains a part of it, but it really doesn't because who would want to live like that? You know what I'm saying? Like, there's like deeper, like institutional, structural things. And he touches on this a little bit that prevent people from actually doing something or even working against it, you know? Which would require more of a, like a Marxist outlook where you basically break down like the broader forces of society that are trending towards this, right? Rose is on something when she was saying that he's absorbed with ideas like quite a bit. And one of the things that I think that is being said here is that this is a mental fallacy for why people aren't taking things more seriously. Because I definitely see a tendency to feel like that there's going to be an arc, even among people that have no rational basis to feel this way, especially boomers that expect to survive to the time for which climate change is going to be a problem. There is a real disconnect there from reality. When I was growing up, I just sort of saw it as a central aspect of American society. There's this great suspension where you embrace these sort of lies in the way that he describes, you know, that useful way that fictions can be. But he's very clear that the fictions aren't just myths, they're, you know, false. I think it's very, very reasonable that we have something very deep in the way that our bodies, that our brain functions, that enables us to just accept the common stories of society without thinking about them too much. Because if all the time we went about thinking about these stories, then society will collapse. I mean, I don't want to give the impression that all these fictions are bad. The basic message is that without these fictions, no society could function, at least not any large-scale society. If you look at a band of 100 people, it can function without any... Uh, um, any mythology or any common fictions just on the basis of knowing everybody else. And I know who you are, and so I can trust you or not and cooperate with you or not. But if you try to build a society with thousands of people or millions of people, you must have some unifying stories in which everybody believes. And if we didn't have this mechanism maybe for shutting down the prefrontal cortex, then it wouldn't work. When you're facing down, like, climate change, something that is looking to kill, like, more people than, like, World War II and World War I combined, I don't think many people can handle that honestly and, you know, just comprehend it fully, you know, the weight and seriousness of it. Boomers especially, like, they haven't stared anything down like that. They're not a part of, like, World War II generation. They're used to relative luxury and a standard of living that's, like, slowly being taken away from us, our generation. Well, maybe part of it is they had the atom bomb, and that never amounted to anything. So, like, yeah, this will probably be fine, too. Mm-hmm. Or oftentimes you hear them talk about how there was, I guess, like, a brief thing in the media where they're talking about there was going to be, like, another ice age or whatever. 
there's going to be another ice age. And now that never happened. Now they're saying it's warming. They don't know what they're talking about. You know, I like how he does talk about how like the West's whole thing about a nuclear first strike to basically protect itself from Soviet encirclement or whatever. And how that was kind of unfair and like morally fucked up. Oh, yeah. So I have a little respect for him. And, you know, he actually does seem relatively charitable to like the Soviet Union and, uh, you know, actually existing socialism as a whole, which is kind of surprising. Yeah. Them forces of production. Yeah. Hey, you can't really blame capitalism or Stalinism from just tearing up a bunch of people's lives. I mean, it just had to happen. I don't know. Like, he has a little more sense of tragedy than that. Yeah, honestly, like, this might be just as John the Baptist prophesied the arrival of the Messiah. (laughs) I really feel like this guy is John the Baptist, but for Yang. (laughs) <laughs> all right all right all right Wait, let's let's draw that out a bit because it's a bit dense you know no i mean first of all he, this dude is actually pro ubi right is that right I, okay again like yang he's part of that sort of new atheist like humanist school yeah like mm-hmm. sam okay. harris and all that okay. shit he's obsessed with like forces of production determinism and finding like a, a pro-human like humanist way of like resolving it right right yeah, like this guy, they say it's not how many read you, it's who reads you, you know? And I think that this guy's career is probably a testament to that. Hey everyone, this year I'm doing a series of public discussions on uh, the future of the internet and society and some of the big issues around that. And um, today I'm here with Yuval Noah Harari, uh, a great historian and uh, best-selling author. But you know, most historians... Um, you know, only t- tackle and, and, um, and analyze the past, but, yeah. you know, but a lot of the work that you've done has had uh, really interesting um, insights and, and raised important questions for the future. So I'm really glad to have an opportunity to, to talk with you today. So Yuval, thank you for, for joining uh, for, for this conversation. Yeah, no, I'm happy to be here. I think that if historians and philosophers cannot engage with the current questions of technology and the future of humanity, then we aren't doing our jobs. Only are not just supposed to chronicle events, you know, centuries ago. All the people that lived in the past are dead. They don't care. The question is what happens to us and mm-hmm. to the, ch- the people in the future. Yeah. That's what I was thinking the most when we were talking about lol, TED Talks. Who the fuck buys into those? You know, it's not about how many people. It's about what kind of self-delusions do rich people have? Yeah. And what kind of influence do they have? No, I feel like this like, guy is like the theoretical foundation for Yangism. You know, Yang so far has basically been kind of the red-brown alliance everyone's been looking for. But it doesn't take the form of like supporting Donald Trump or whatever. Like it takes the form of like this weird like technocratic centrism <laughs> and wants to give everyone $1,000 a month. It takes a bag. Says a lot about ideology that you can just like wave a thousand dollars in front of like any fascist face, and they'll be like, "Yeah, you know, maybe we should stop saying the n word as much, and maybe we can just like just tone it down with the racism just for a little bit to vote for my man Yang." You know, doesn't that in a way kind of vindicate a lot of the Bernie stands who are like, "See, if you address the material needs of the white working class." Like, it reduces racial tensions. Yeah. These people are willing to drop the ethnostate for $1,000 a month. I mean, it vindicates the base and the superstructure. Like, it vindicates (laughs) orthodox Marxism. (laughs) I don't know if I was high enough to read this book. You know, like, I got pretty high this morning, and I was reading some Mm -hmm. Baudrillard, and I was cruising. I was reading Baudrillard as he is meant to be read, which is Mm -hmm. sloppily. The thing is, though, like, you're not an undergrad, though. You should do, like, what adults do. Uh, collect Funko Pops and play video games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fucking David yeah, Busters. That's, yeah. That's fucking right. Go see movies about superheroes. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. not just one a year, like, five a year. Hey, that's man. what adults yeah. do. Hey, man, leave me alone. All right? Yeah. I, I still think learning's important. <laughs> so, uh, like, at the beginning of that Sorrel piece we read, look, I don't care what you fucking Marxists say about history. Politics has been, like, the same as shit for, like, a long time. Like, look, I quoted a bunch of old shit, and, like, whatever, you think things are so different, and you're all scientific now, but dead up, like, peoples are still apes, and it'd still be like this. Harari has, like, a sort of similar vibe. He doesn't completely subscribe to this in, only in politics, but it's, like, a broader theory, right? It's that, like, look, science, whatever. 
like, all right, yeah, science makes antibiotics and they cure you whether you believe in them or not. And, you know, creates a bunch of technical changes. But in essence, you know, humans aren't going to overcome shit. He seemed pretty pessimistic to me. He seemed to think that we'll always be roped into these treadmills of ideology. And that's the sense that I get from, like, the post-structuralists as well. He seems to be defending, and I find this a lot in Israeli academics, actually. They're armed with what a lot of English-speaking philosophers would think of as continental philosophy. They know about that stuff, but they write, for the most part, in, like, an analytic-ish style, right? Even though this has, like, a bit of a Guardian article uh, jab to it, it's written clearly... This is way downstream from, like, Carl Sagan, basically. <laughs> yeah, right. I could definitely see the similarities because, you know, Sagan was very much like, oh, science is a candle in the darkness, you know. Mm -hmm. Talking about, like, the possibilities of the future, but this is such a fucked era, the future looks real, real murky. Real murky. Uh, what do we think of this? Here's, here's I'm just going to pull something here. Uh, socialism, which was very up-to-date 100 years ago, failed to come up with the new technology. Lenoid Brezhnev and Fidel Castro held on to ideas that Marx and Lenin formulated in the age of steam. They did not understand the power of computers and biotechnology. Liberals, in contrast, adapted far better to the information age. This partly explains why Khrushchev's 1956 prediction never materialized, and why was it the liberal capitalists who eventually buried the Marxists? If Marx came back to life today, he'd probably urge his few remaining disciples to devote less time to reading Das Kapital and more time to studying the <laughs> internet and the human genome. Aw, Damn. <laughs> epically owned there fucking you think you're so scientific take well, this harari most marxists do just look at the internet and don't read capital so <laughs> booyah <laughs> well aren't you like writing computer programs like about different like marxist uh -huh. like theoretical formulations <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah so there me. you go that's uh, maybe marxists should have spent more time watching ted talks instead of reading books <laughs> To be fair, like, how many communists really don't give a shit about yeah. capital? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting, too. I mean, Allende was interested in cybernetics. Like, there was cyber sin, and yeah. even the Soviet Union considered putting more funding into that, but ultimately they didn't, right? So, I mean, like, this stuff was on people's minds, but I think he is, in a lot of ways, correct. Like, a part of the problem hmm. of, you know, central planning was an inability to manage the complexities of producing for consumption, you know? Because people were still very much in the early 20th century, yeah. 19th century mindset, whereas sort of like Bordega talking about how communism will be, you know, you get your sack of potatoes, you get your wool, you get your bar of soap, you know, right. and that's basically war <laughs> communism forever, you know? Yeah, the good communism forever. Ration com. Yeah. That's the big alternative to, you know, like abacus planning market socialism, right? Yeah. Like... <laughs> is ration communism. Look, the more we talk about it, the more I feel like this is a solid Marxian read, that the forces of production couldn't sustain fucking global communism because the calculation thing was actually an issue. And I haven't like gone into the Marxist literature about it to see what heroic socialist intellectuals I'm betraying by saying that. But um, seems like an admissible Marxist reaction to the way everything panned out. In ancient times, land was the most important asset in the world. Politics, therefore, was the struggle to control land. And dictatorship meant that all the land was owned by a single ruler or by a small oligarchy. Then in the modern age, machines became more important than land. Politics became the struggle to control the machines. And dictatorship meant that too many of the machines became concentrated in the hands of the government or of a small elite. Now data is replacing both land and machines as the most important asset. Politics becomes the struggle to control the flows of data. And dictatorship now means that too much data is being concentrated in the hands of the government or of a small elite. The greatest danger that now faces liberal democracy is that the revolution in information technology will make dictatorships more efficient than democracies. In the 20th century, democracy and capitalism defeated fascism and communism because democracy was better at processing data 
and making decisions. Given 20th century technology, it was simply inefficient to try and concentrate too much data and too much power in one place. But it is not a law of nature that centralized data processing is always less efficient than distributed data processing. With the rise of artificial intelligence and machine learning, it might become feasible to process enormous amounts of information very efficiently in one place, to take all the decisions in one place, and then centralized data processing will be more efficient than distributed data processing. And then the main handicap of authoritarian regimes in the 20th century, their attempt to concentrate all the information in one place, it will become their greatest advantage. For what it is, this isn't that bad. I mean, again, like there's the kind of, um, you know, sniff ideological blockage at work here. But he is basically trying to grapple with these very difficult questions, and he doesn't really have any answers either. But he talks about the problem in a way that why get people like Joe Rogan excited and like, oh man, we're really thinking, aren't we, right now? Like, let me read like the last little paragraph here. We can talk about that. This book began by forecasting that in the 21st century, humans will try to attain immortality, bliss, and divinity. This forecast isn't very original or far-sighted. It simply reflects the traditional ideals of liberal humanism. Since humanism has long sanctified the life, the emotions, and the desires of human beings, it's hardly surprising that a humanist civilization will want to maximize human lifespans, human happiness, and human power. Yet the third and final part of the book will argue that attempting to realize this humanist dream will undermine its very foundations by unleashing new post-humanist technologies. The humanist belief in feelings has enabled us to benefit from the fruits of the modern covenant without paying its price. We don't need any gods to limit our power and give us meaning. With the free choices of customers and voters, it supplies with all the meaning we require. What then will happen once we realize that customers and voters never make free choices, and once we have the technology to calculate, design, or outsmart their feelings? If the whole universe is pegged to the human experience, what will happen once the human experience becomes just another designable product, no different in essence from any other item in the supermarket? Welcome to post-structuralism, ladies and yeah. gentlemen. And but he, I think he means it also, too, in a much more like literalistic way, where he's probably talking about AI and the sort of predictive technologies that can for each person, like, predict what they're going to do. I mean, like, I've heard so many mixed things. Like, there's people saying, we're all going to have our brain in the computer. There's other people saying, it's all a big grift. And, like, these different, like, Silicon Valley companies just put AI on shit to attract investors. I'm really hesitant to speculate on any of that stuff at that point, because I really don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, you know? Maybe I can try and, and, and summarize my, my view on that. We have two distinct dangers coming out of the same technological tools. Uh, we have the, the easier danger to grasp, which is of extreme totalitarian regimes of a kind we haven't seen before. And this could happen in, in different countries, maybe not in the US, but in, in other countries, that these tools, uh, you say that these are abuses. But in some countries, this could become the norm that you are living from the moment you are born in this system that constantly monitors and surveils you and constantly kind of manipulates you from, from a very early age to adopt particular ideas, views, habits, so forth, in a way which was never possible before. Mm -hmm. And this is like the full-fledged totalitarian dystopia, which could be so effective that people would not even resent it because it, they will be completely aligned with the, the values or, or, or the ideals of, of the system. It's not 1984 where you need to torture people all the time. No, if you have agents inside their brain, you don't need the external secret police. So that's, that's one danger. It's like the, 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 the full-fledged totalitarianism. Then in places like the US, the more immediate danger or, or problem to think about is what is increasingly people refer to as surveillance capitalism that you have these systems that constantly interact with you and, and come to, to know you, and it's all supposedly in your best interests to give you better recommendations and better advice. So it starts with recommendation for which movie to, to watch and, and where to go on vacation. But as the system becomes better, it gives you a recommendation on what to study at college, uh, where to work, ultimately whom to marry, mm -hmm. who to vote for, which religion to join, like join a community, like 
you have all these religious communities, this is the best religion for you. For your type of personality, Judaism, nah, it, it won't work for you. Go with Zen Buddhism. It's, it's, it's a much better fit for your personality. You would thank us. In five years, you would look back and you say, this was an amazing recommendation. Thank you. I so, so much enjoy Zen Buddhism. People will, it will feel that this is aligned with their own best interests. And, and the system improves over time. Yeah, there will be glitches. Not everybody will be happy all the time. But what does it mean that all the most important decisions in my life are being taken by an external algorithm? What does it mean in terms of human agency, in terms of, you know, the meaning of life? You know, mm -hmm. for, for thousands of years, humans tended to view life as a drama of decision-making. Yeah, I, I understand the, the point that you're making. As one of the people who's running a company that develops ranking systems to try to help show people content that's going to be interested mm -hmm. to them, um, I, there's a dissonance between the way that you're explaining what you think is possible mm -hmm. and what I see as a, as a, as a practitioner building this. Mm -hmm. I think you can build systems that can get good at, at, at a very specific thing, right? At helping to, um, you know, understand which of your friends you care the most about so you can rank their content mm -hmm. higher in newsfeed. But the idea that there's some kind of generalized um, AI that's a monolithic thing that understands all dimensions of, 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 of who you are um, in, in a way that's, that's deeper than you do, um, I think doesn't exist and is probably quite far off from existing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I can say with climate change coming around soon, the catastrophe that will bring, I, I don't think we're going to get our brains into vats or whatever. And I don't think all these rich people are going to be able to escape in the end. Like, I can at least say, you know, you're dragging us into hell, and you're going to die with us, too. For, like, rich people to survive, like, the climate shift, they would basically have to lay kind of the political and organizational groundwork for it. And that's what's kind of scary about some of the stuff that he's concerned about, like, the massive, like, surveillance state that exists, like, the massive military apparatus, militarization of the police and stuff building of walls to block like climate refugees like who's that for who's that for mm -hmm. you're gonna see things like shift like in a more authoritarian direction as time goes by and maybe that even explains like some of the contemporary liberal psychosis and like they're clinging to these institutions or whatever where it's like they'll argue to go along with this stuff because they've just been like nickel and dimed out of their own convictions <laughs> to the point where it's like well you know we gotta compromise on this that's why it's so important right now to like confront imperialism. It's so at like the center of all this stuff where there's liberals like shitting for the wrong reasons on like Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah. They can't like even acknowledge like the level to which like imperialism like structures so much of like the American social contract, you know, and why it's important to go against that because that's pretty much ready made to like fight off a hostile world of diminishing resources. Like the last 20 years, like our entire ventures in the Middle East has been just to get some fucking oil. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what's it going to be when it's harder to grow food? When we were doing our libertarian episode on Rothbard, I was thinking to myself, like, I just can't believe that Rand Paul, like, doing some kind of filibuster in the Senate about the military. It's not even really that much about imperialism, you know? I'm, libertarians like that don't really give a shit about imperialism, but will make a fetish of certain police state technologies. I mean, Ron Paul, in the debates, well, he literally called America an empire. Ron Paul, on the other hand, actually, like, sounded anti-imperialist. Something that, if you look at the early days at the SPD Day, I feel a bit like I have my own shibboleth going. But get into Parliament and rail at the military establishment. It was a propaganda mouthpiece for attacking the militarist state. But really, what else can we do? <laughs> I don't know, like Angela Nagel or, you know, <coughs> providing the great justification for just blocking off those climate refugees. We got to protect our proletariat, our working class from the immigrants that are coming over. Obviously, they don't want to build walls. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you apply that logic in a situation where climate refugees are coming in like massive waves you're going to have no choice but to have those sort of walls there and to have harsher immigration policies. 
So even though like the quote unquote Marxists aren't like arguing the conservative position per se on borders. It's one of those cases where being consistent is worse because they are consistent, like kind of Lasallian socialists and that they go for the full embrace of the nation state and of borders and of the kind of logic of exclusion that that necessitates. They understand what a state's really about. They understand what the nation's really about. But they're for it. (laughs) They're for it in a way that forces us to, like, farcically replay, like, the third international split. As opposed to a lot of, you know, liberal statists that are like, yeah, we are the world. What's the problem? We have a country. We have borders. But, you know, we have, like, a lot of people coming in and out. Yeah. Well, I said it before, like, that is kind of Trump's answer. Like, the prefigurative politics of the wall are such that people kind of, like, rightly sense from neoliberalism, the walls are basically gated communities. And like sections for the rich that separate them from interacting with, you know, the rest of the public basically and contributing to the broader needs of public society. And so Trump's wall is basically saying like, there will be a wall to keep the rabble out and you're going to be inside of it. We'll have a wall as a nation, you know, and the nation will be the tribe that will weather the storm of, you know, whatever crazy shit is happening right now that they imagine is happening, which will be nothing compared to what's coming. Gradually, people came together and became more and more connected until we reached today when the entire world, for the first time, is a single historical, economic, and and cultural unit. But it's really a question of are we talking about connecting people or are we talking about harmonizing people? Mm -hmm. Uh, Connecting people can lead to a lot of conflicts. And when you look at the world today, you see this duality um, for example, in, 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 the, in, the, in the rise of walls, which we talked a about, about earlier when, when, when we met, yeah. which for me is something that I just can't figure out what, what is happening mm-hmm. because you have all this you know, new connecting technology and the internet and virtual realities and social networks. And, and then one of the top political issues becomes building walls and not just you know, cyber walls or firewalls, building stone walls, like the most stone age technology is suddenly the most advanced technology. So how to make sense of this world, which is more connected than ever, but at the same time is building more walls than ever before. I was also going to say, like, imperialism is kind of a blind spot in this dude's outlook as well, where he seems to almost subscribe to, like, the Steven Pinker view, where it's like, there's less violence than ever, and the neoliberal world order is pretty much eliminated war from the world stage, and it's like, yeah, yeah I guess if you, like, don't count a few continents, you know, like, <laughs> this, yeah, if, you know, Western Europe and the North America, and only, the, like, the parts of North America, north of Mexico, there's no war there, but... The rest of the world, uh, got some bad news for you, buddy. Obviously inconsistent on things like that. Because then he talks about the scramble for Africa. Yeah. The way that liberal powers, like, divided that. Which is, you know, literal history. So, he sends mixed signals on that. It's something I've noticed about, like, Israelis will often frame, like, their racism as being kind of woke. Good Silicon Valley tech bro actually kind of, like, overlaps with the sort of attitude that I get. Being like, well, I hate racists, but, you know, there's definitely, like, some cultures are better than others, and I'm woke on imperialism, but he uses the idea of Arabs having natural rights as a form of liberal religion. You know what I mean? Yeah, why would he do that as an Israeli? Where is he going with that? And let's start with a question. How many fascists are there in the audience today? (laughs) Well, it's a bit difficult to say, because we've forgotten what fascism is. People now use the term fascist as a kind of general purpose abuse, or they confuse fascism with nationalism. So let's take a few minutes to clarify what fascism actually is, and how is it different from nationalism. The milder forms of nationalism have been among the most benevolent of human creations. Nations are communities of millions of strangers who don't really know each other. For example, I don't know the eight million people who share my Israeli citizenship. But thanks to nationalism, we can all care about one another and cooperate effectively. 
This is very good. Some people, like John Lennon, imagine that without nationalism, the world will be a peaceful paradise. But far more likely, without nationalism, we would have been living in tribal chaos. If you look today at the most prosperous and peaceful countries in the world, countries like Sweden and Switzerland and Japan, you will see that they have a very strong sense of nationalism. In contrast, countries that lack a strong sense of nationalism, like Congo and Somalia and Afghanistan, tend to be violent and poor. But again, you can find some good Marxist scholarship that actually does talk about how like, civilizations can develop and build upon each other. Like Lauren Goldner's stuff, historically the center of like, high civilization has shifted between different parts of the world in different periods mm-hmm. for historical materialist reasons. He does actually argue there is like a literal progression between these civilizations, but it's not something that's like the purview of the West or whatever, right? Hmm. I mean, you could say that depends on what respect you're talking about, that some civilizations are better than others, yeah. But that's not an exclusive evolutionary humanist outlook. Now that I think about it, that is, honestly, that's a term that could only come out of Silicon Valley. The land of Ray Kurzweil and Nick Land, you know? I mean, that's like the big ideological turn there for me. Reading this was like, whoa, you're going to do this? Yeah, evolutionary humanism. Like, he's clearly writing in such a way, or I find it the most obvious way to read this, and maybe I'm being unsophisticated, but it just seems implied that he's putting forward a lot of these things as absurdities. That the fountain, the, the urinal, that's art, yeah. is, is an absurdity. You know, and that he feels that way about a lot of the examples that he's citing. <laughs> to be honest, there's very little that separates a Zionist from, like, an actual Nazi. Hot day, but, like, you have a weird ethno-state that's, like, violently, ethnically cleansing the Palestinian population and, like, views itself under constant attack and needs to spend so much money on its military. It's basically like Starship Troopers or Third Reich. (laughs) I don't want to Nazi bait too much. I'm tempted to say that a lot of this stuff is fascist, but it's also sort of liberal colonialist. Manifest Destiny. Is Manifest Destiny fascism or is it, you know liberalism isn't that just what it do it's exactly the kind of inconsistent humanism that leads to the analysis in critical theory of the dialectic of enlightenment of the weird anti-human humanism because you know like come on it's sweden in the middle east but it's also this like crypto fascist dystopia when we were looking at rothbard and we were thinking of like keynesian countries are fascist you know what i mean israeli racism is awful and really bad They're almost singular as a form of colonization, outright colonization, directly expanding. Almost singular. In terms of being, you know, racist, there's a lot of fucking real racist capitalism that kills a lot of people. It's like this post-fascist category. It's this weird, like, totalitarian, I want to say liberalism, but it's more complicated than that. This kind of reminds me of Rothbard. And that this is written by somebody who's comfortable, I feel like. You know, yeah. He examines these things, but I don't think he really takes them seriously in a fundamental way. Granted, there's a lot of people who have had very comfortable existences, but he's not vexed the way that I feel like great thinkers often are. You know? Yeah. Like, I mean, he's definitely curious about different things, and he's grappling with these questions, but I don't know. He's not existentially engaged with it in a way. Yeah. This is definitely a guy who meditates. You know, he was like, kind of, hey man, it's all just, it's all, just in, it's all going on, you know? What will be, will be. You know, I, I spend two hours meditating every day. And I go on these long meditation retreats. Mm-hmm. And my main takeaway from that is it's craziness inside there. And it's so complicated. And the, 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 the simple naive belief that the thought that pops up in my mind, this is my free will, this, is, this was never the case. But if, say, a thousand years ago, the battles inside were mostly between, you know, neurons and biochemicals and childhood memories and, and, and all that, increasingly, you have external actors going under your skin and into, into your brain and into your mind. And how do I trust that my amygdala is not a Russian agent now. How do I know? The more we understand about the extremely complex world inside us, the less easy it is 
to simply trust what this inner voice is, is, is telling, is saying. Honestly, give me like the maestro over this. <laughs> like you read the maestro, the maestro, yeah, he's very comfortable. He's a, he's an aristocrat, but the maestro is fucking pissed. You know, he is fucking pissed all the time. And that's fun. That's fun to read. To my sure, that's a man that stands for something. This Harari? Yeah, push him into the sea. <laughs> that's it for this week. Episodes like this one are made possible by Bonapartists like you. Not One Step Back custom episodes are available on Patreon for $10 a month for six months or on PayPal for $60. For subscriptions, go to patreon.com slash swampsidechats. And for all-in-one payments, go to paypal.me slash swampsidechats. If you care to encourage our bong rip shenanigans, like our pages on social media, or leave a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice. Visit our homepage at swampside.chat for more information. Swampside Chats is part of the Emancipation Podcast Network and Research Collective. Check out our comrade podcasts, From Alpha to Omega and General Intellect Unit, at emancipation.network. You can find me regularly on the From Alpha to Omega reading series. We've got another Curveball custom episode coming up next. So remember, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.